0: Welcome to an extended bonus episode of Finding Medina. I'm calling this one Digging Medina. I'm Brandon Seal. Two emails, separated by almost a year, restarted our search for the Battle of Medina. The first email came on December 6th, 2019, about six months after the last episode had dropped from our Finding Medina podcast season, which I recommend you look up and listen to so that the rest of what follows here makes sense. Good morning, Mr. Seal, the email began. We haven't met, but Kay Hines provided me with your email. I'm the new regional archaeologist for South Texas at the Texas Historical Commission. I'm not sure if you're yet aware, but there's a newly invigorated push within our agency to determine the Battle of Medina's location. We're hoping to involve researchers such as yourself who have dedicated years, if not decades, to this issue. For now, a small team that includes myself, Emily Dilla, our newly appointed archaeology division director, Brad Jones, And our GIS specialist, archaeologist Virginia Moore, is tasked with familiarizing ourselves with the materials that we have on hand. This was great news. The Texas Historical Commission was moving the Battle of Medina to the top of their list. And why not? The largest, bloodiest battle in Texas history, the first steps toward Texas independence, the critical series of events without which the rest of 19th century Texas history doesn't really make sense. Why shouldn't these things be a focus for the Texas Historical Commission? But Emily's email also felt like a part of our formula for finding the battlefield was working. Fundamentally, our idea had been to try to crowdsource history here. Our goal in publicizing the battle and bringing more eyeballs to it was really to try to turn up more artifacts, data points that we could use to analytically narrow down the possible locations of the battlefield. And it was obvious to me that the gravity in the name of the Texas Historical Commission would go a long way toward advancing that. We had several great meetings with Emily and the team at the Texas Historical Commission, sharing ideas, maps, and sources. We identified some manpower resources that we could pull in, like the Texas Historical Commission Stewards Program, and critical partners like the Atascosa County Historical Commission, which has probably done more than any other organization to keep the memory of this battle alive over the years. But then, of course, March of 2020 came around.
1: Uh, The first travel-related case of COVID-19 in San Antonio was confirmed late last night. This case is related to out-of-state travel?
0: That's right. We're going multimedia in this episode. Let's see how this works. You might think that searching for a battlefield in remote parts of Atascosa County would be a pretty good way to pass a pandemic. But you might also recall that it was a pretty strange time. A time that kind of put us all to thinking about our families and our jobs and other more important things in life. And in the midst of such uncertainty and death, frankly... I wasn't really in the mood to want to think about battles. Instead, I found solace in the gospel of Alvar Núñez Cabeza de Vaca, which consumed the better part of the middle of 2020 for me and which emerged this season three of this series. But then, about seven months into the pandemic, on October 14, 2020, I received another unexpected email. Hello, Mr. Seal, this email began. I run a 501c3 called American Veterans Archaeological Recovery. We use archaeological fieldwork to combat the isolation and disempowerment common in the veteran community. I happened to come across your search for the site at the Battle of Medina after talking to one of my veterans who got hooked on metal detecting during our project on the battlefield of Saratoga and who now lives in San Antonio. Please let me know if you think this might be worth a conversation. Best, Stephen Humphreys. Stephen was also kind enough to refer me to a YouTube link which gave a little more information about the American Veterans Archaeological Recovery, or AVAR for short.
2: These are people that have seen kind of the worst of the worst in terms of combat. Everybody that comes to this team right now has two common denominators. One, they're interested in archeology span in one way or another, and two are veterans. Who better to find a lost battlefield than a bunch of veterans? Than a bunch of veterans trained in archaeology.
3: So the reason that archaeology really bonds veterans is that archaeology is a lot like military service. We have a shared mission that we're all pulling together in order to reach. There's an academic mission for these digs that's set by a technical specialist in that area. Um, and we're all moving toward getting that done, just like in military service. We're working outside with our hands. We're on a pretty tight-knit schedule, so we've got that uh, stability and solidity to the day. And, of course, we're working alongside other veterans who have the same values that we do. So, in a sense, it's, it's like military service without the shooting is kind of like what we like to
0: This felt like the ingredient that we'd been missing all along. A group of people. A unit of trained volunteers working under a single, consistent methodology that we could deploy into the field to start confirming, or as the case may be, invalidating locations for the battlefield of Medina. I called up Emily and Brad in Virginia with the Texas Historical Commission, and they were equally excited. We all got together, virtually, of course, by Zoom. Stephen Humphreys with Avar. Emily and Brad with the Texas Historical Commission, and we even pulled Kay Hines, former City of San Antonio archaeologist and longtime Battle of Medina searcher, out of retirement and started pulling together a plan. Yet the truth was, we actually still had a bigger problem than a lack of brainpower or even manpower. We still didn't really have any landowners willing to let us metal detect on their property. Stepping back for a second, we'd long ago settled on metal detecting as the best way to find evidence of this particular battle. We tried looking at LIDAR, but the battle hadn't been a fixed enough battle to have left any scars on the landscape, at least not according to most of the accounts that that exist of it. The alleged burial site of the Republican dead, some hundreds of them, would be another logical place to look. But my fear there was that hundreds of bones left out in the brush of the de Medina for nine years and then recollected and hastily buried in a mass grave wouldn't leave much of a signature that you could find up at the surface. What we did know, however, was that at least somewhere during the battle, several hundred or maybe even thousand Spanish royalist and Republican insurgents had slugged it out in close proximity for two to four hours, at some point less than 40 yards apart. We knew that the Spanish artillery alone fired some 950 cannon rounds in the course of that slugfest. And so there must be some lead and iron still stuck in the ground somewhere at this spot to attest to this. To date, however... Thousands of mailers, hundreds of hours of driving around, dozens of doors knocked on and one very lengthy podcast season, had produced only a handful of true leads as we might think of them. Lots of anecdotes, plenty of stories, but no concentration of munitions that might suggest a battlefield. And so it looked like we were going to have to go out and find them for ourselves. If only we could find someone who would let us. On Tuesday, April 6th, 2021, so fully six months after I'd received the email from Stephen Humphreys, and almost a year and a half after i had first been put in contact with the Texas Historical Commission, my friend Anthony Delgado invited me to speak to his group, Hispanic Heritage Matters, specifically about Texas's first Declaration of Independence, issued in the months leading up to the Battle of Medina.
1: This evening, Hispanic Heritage Matters in Texas proudly hosts Brandon Seal. This evening, we're talking about the April 6th, 1813 Texas Declaration of Independence, its first Declaration of Independence, 208 years ago. Anthony
0: Delgado himself is a direct descendant of some of the main protagonists of the events leading up to the Battle of Medina. In fact, Four of his ancestors sat on the revolutionary junta that governed Texas following the state's first declaration of independence. And first off, let me just say what, what a treat it is to, to be with this group. As I look through the last names on the screen, I see Corobellos and Tarins and Delgados, and really everything I'm talking about here is is, is about you know your ancestors. And, and so it's uh, anyway, like I said, it's a treat to give this talk today. I'll spare you the content of the discussion. It's it's on YouTube if you want to go look for it. And honestly, if you've listened to season two of this podcast, you, you've heard a lot of it. But the reason I'm bringing it up now is because one of the listeners that evening shared my talk with someone who hadn't heard me talk about this subject before, and that someone now wanted to meet me. Judge Robert Tonoff was 91 years old when I first talked to him. He was suffering from severe macular degeneration, to the point that he was almost blind. His wife of 69 years, Victoria, was in failing health, and he was locked up in COVID isolation. And yet Judge Tanoff was still the most resoundingly high-spirited, big-souled man that I think I've ever met. Every sentence he speaks sounds like it ought to be followed by trumpets, like he's just proclaiming with every breath some great triumph. Judge Tanoff had spent 35 years as a history teacher in Jurdenton, Fashing, in Carnes City. Every Saturday morning, for years, he would wake up at 4 a.m., drive 116 miles to Austin, spend the entire day trolling through the University of Texas stacks until they ran him off at about 5 p.m., and he drove home. History energized Robert Tonoff; It still does. It gives him life. Particularly, the history of his local community in and around Atascosa and Carnes counties, the latter of which he would eventually become county judge of. The most widely known product of the judge's passion for history was his collaboration with Ted Schwartz on a book published in 1986 called Forgotten Battlefield. It's more than 35 years old now, but it remains the starting point for scholarship on the Battle of Medina. And here in the digital present, I feel like I can't undersell enough how much work it must have taken to have pulled all those sources together that Judge Tanoff and Mr. Schwartz did. This was at a time when pulling primary sources meant physically driving, or if you're lucky, riding to Austin, Saltillo, or Mexico City, and just hoping that somebody might respond and send you the materials that you need. Well, Judge Tanoff was thrilled to hear about what we were doing looking for the battlefield. And even at the age of 91, he wanted to help. He was too old, he said, to go out and knock on doors and traipse through cow pastures, but he'd made some friends over the years in the area of the 2006 battle marker, which had been placed at the intersection of Bruce and Applewhite Road. The property that Judge Tanoff had in mind was just on the northeast side of Galvan Creek. So let me remind you that several of the accounts of the Battle of Medina seem to allude to the Royalist and Republican armies colliding just on the northeast side of a creek bed. In fact, given all this, let me just remind you generally about the contours of the battle. On the morning of August 18th, 1813, The insurgent Republican Army of the North tried to set an ambush for the Spanish Royalist force under General Joaquín de Arredondo that was approaching from the south. The Republicans set their ambush somewhere on the Camino Real south of the Medina River, but they sprung it prematurely. When the first Royalist scout rode into view, the Republicans couldn't control their itchy trigger fingers, and they fired, giving away their position. Soon, they had committed almost their entire force to battle with what turned out to be only a screening cavalry force that Spanish Royalist General Arredondo had sent forward. The Royalist Cavalry Force began then to strategically retreat south through the August heat and the beach sand of the Encinal de Medina, drawing the Republicans into their own ambush. Here's Maclean's account from 1861, a battle participant on the Republican side. Quote, On approaching a thick chaparral, Skirting the next stream of water, they were fired on from the thicket, end quote. According to that account at least, then, it sounds like the Royalists had parked themselves on the northeast bank of a stream to ambush the Republicans coming at them from the same direction. So going back to the property, let's call the owner of this property Dr. J, because I don't quite feel comfortable giving out his, his real name. Eighty-four years young when I met him, Dr. J is still a practicing chiropractor though he seems to practice today more out of charity than anything else. He only charges $25 per session, serving mostly Hispanic, lower-wage clientele who can't afford doctors, most of whom also don't speak English. Which was a little amusing because Dr. J doesn't really speak Spanish. I got to watch him work one day as he laid his client down and went to probing at his tender spots on his back, asking him, Aquí? 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 Then after he poked around and massaged a little, he reached for a 50-year-old electrical stimulation machine with tin can lids for electrodes, and he started working out the client's knots with electrical pulses. When he was done, the client assured me that it had worked. He handed over his $25 and left swinging his arms contentedly. Dr. Jay was born in Atascosa County, on the very land that I was talking to him about now. He had explored every corner of it, and still made Mustang grape wine every summer which involved him going out and picking grapes in the 100-degree heat for days, all to make batches of wine that he mostly gave away to his friends. He was also a car guy. I got a kick out of hearing him tell stories because every time he told a story about a vehicle, he wouldn't refer to it just as his truck or his car. He'd refer to it as his 74 AMC 3.8 liter body-on-frame wagoneer, even if it was just like a peripheral detail of the story. In fact, he still drives a freshly painted but otherwise unrestored 1966 International Harvester pickup truck. Anyway, after we talked for a while, Dr. Jay told me that there was a giant oak tree on his property that had had a giant cross on it, but that the tree had fallen down in the last couple of decades. At the base of that tree, he'd set a steel cross to mark it. Because also, not far from that tree, he had found an iron ball. Now, there's a lot of folks in this part of the world that have stories about finding iron balls, but as you may recall from our first season of this, there's a lot fewer that can actually produce them. When I asked Dr. J if he knew where that ball might be, he pointed to the table by my elbow, and there it was, sitting in an old ashtray with his pocket change. The ball was pitted, rusted, the way you'd want a 200-year-old piece of iron shot to be. If I squinted, I felt like maybe I could make out a seam around the circumference, like you kind of needed a 200-year-old piece of cast shot to have. I pulled out some calipers, measured it. It was about one inch, which is about the right size for a piece of grape shot from the period. Of course, it was also suspiciously close to one inch, like a one-inch ball bearing. But nevertheless, it was all intriguing. I asked Dr. J if we could go see this tree, or this cross at least. Let's go, he said. So we hopped in my 2019 5.7-liter body-on-frame Toyota Tundra, and we headed out to his place through the unmistakable blackjack sand of the Encinal de Medina, and we crossed to the northeast bank of the mighty Galvan Creek, looking for the decaying corpse of an enormous old oak tree. Was it hey, hey, okay, the poncho tree was from, from when? From 1910? Was when you put the marker no, no, up when no, they...
2: Pancho was uh, died about 1910. Got you. And he had it before my dad's brother Frank. My dad's brother Frank had this 80 acres. Uh huh. And they made the deal, whoever... Lived. Oh, I see the cross right there, he was sir. To get the place, he was going into war.
0: Yeah. Okay, so it belonged to Pancho, somebody named Francisco, beforehand. And is Pancho buried here, or...?
2: Yes, that's where he's buried. Right. At the base of that big tree. At the base of that big and tree. You see that big
0: log there? I that, do. That's
2: the tree. You maybe want a picture of that log.
0: Dr. J., called it the Pancho Tree. Apparently, the man who had owned this property prior to his father more than 100 years ago was named Pancho, and he had apparently passed away and been buried under the tree. I had this idea that a man like that might want to be buried at a sacred spot, say perhaps under a tree where many others had been buried after the Battle of Medina, a location lost to the general public but perhaps preserved in memory by locals. So finding this tree was important to me.
2: We assume he's buried there where that post is because that's where the cross was cut on the
0: tree. All right, you heard him say that, right? That that's where the cross was cut on the tree. So just to jog your memory, do you remember the line from José Antonio Navarro's recollections of the aftermath of the Battle of Medina? Quote, I distinctly remember the following inscription written on a square of wood, which was on the trunk of an oak tree. Here lie the brave Mexicans, following the example of Leonidas who sacrificed their wealth and lives fighting ceaselessly against tyrants, end quote. The iron ball, the cross, taken together, it was enough to get excited. I asked Dr. J straight up if he would mind if we brought out some veterans to do some metal detecting. Not at all, he said. And with that, we had our first property. So driving up and down Old Pleasanton Road, another property had always called out to me. What had always made this property stand out was that I had seen it flying the 1824 Alamo flag. You know, the Mexican flag with the eagle and serpent replaced by the numerals 1824, a reference to the Federalist Constitution of 1824 that was very much the product of the thinking of men who had called themselves Republicans back in 1813. Any landowner who was flying that flag, it occurred to me, Well, that seemed like a person who would be into Texas history and might be sympathetic to our search. Of course, I probably shouldn't give myself too much credit because this property also sat right in the middle of a UTSA researcher's proposed battle location. I'm talking here about the work of Bruce Moses. And you might recall that my collaborator, Kay Hines, thought the world of Bruce Moses.
2: Well, you know, um, gosh, I put so much stock in Bruce Moses' work, because he was so good, y'all. Oh, he was so good. And, you know, he nailed the powder house. He had the powder house. He he had it. He just died before he got to prove it up.
0: uh, The so-called powder house that Kay is referring to was a building on San Antonio's east side, which had actually been one of the stops of the Republican Army on the way down to the battlefield in 1813. And in 2016, it was found precisely where Bruce Moses had said it should be. Unfortunately, he wasn't alive to get the credit. He passed tragically at the age of 44 in 2011 from Hodgkin's lymphoma. In 2020, however, our friend, Art martinez Vara had published Bruce Moses' book as The Roads to Medina, in which was published most of the life's work of Bruce Moses around locating the battlefield of Medina, including this circle that included this property as a proposed battle location. So I pulled up to the gate of this 1824 flag property and I buzzed the call box. Here, I want to make sure I convey to you what an uncomfortable thing this is to do. Because I am fully aware of what an odd imposition this is on a landowner. It's one thing to be a door-to-door salesman or even a landman cold calling on a landowner. At least then you're offering them something of value. In the case of a historical researcher, you're offering them nothing more than some wild theories and the likelihood that I won't leave them alone once they start talking to me. And, frankly, to put it mildly, I've been pretty unceremoniously run off some people's doorsteps before, and I wish I could tell you that that kind of thing just rolls off my shoulders, but it doesn't. Anyway, the owners of the 1824 property were not those kind of people. They opened the gate, and they invited me up. There was something else that intrigued me, too, about their property, which I realized as soon as I climbed the hill up to where their house was it sat right on the northeast side of Gainas Creek. Recall the quotes that I just read a few minutes ago about the collision of Republican and Royalist forces having occurred just along a stream and probably on the northeast side of that stream. Furthermore, Gainas Creek in particular appears by name in Antonio Menchaca's memoirs. And recall that he was the nephew of the Tejano leader of the Republican forces, Miguel Menchaca, during the Battle of Medina. So he was someone who almost certainly knew where the battlefield was. Here's the line from Menchaca's memoirs. Quote, Coming to a place he considered advantageous to his purpose, Arredondo stopped at the waterholes called Charcos de Gainas on the hill this side of the Atascoso Creek and about five miles from the Medina River. End quote. The Atascoso Creek that Menchaca refers to was another name for Gainas Creek itself around that time. Another contemporary account from James Gaines, who was present at the burial of the Republican dead nine years after the battle, recalled, quote, Arvondo now advanced to a small lake where he fortified distant about six miles from Medina, end quote. Well, this 1824 property was almost exactly six miles from the Medina River. Coincidentally, six miles from either of the two crossings of the Medina that we had focused on in the first season, the so-called Laredo Crossing and the Lasoya Crossing, And just behind that 1824 property is where Gainas Creek had been dammed up to form quite a substantial lake, or a charco, to use the South Texas term. And looking back at aerials as far back as 1928, we could see that this spot had always had charcos present. This was way too compelling to ignore, even if the landowners admitted that they hadn't ever found any artifacts. I came right out with it, and I asked them if they'd be willing to let a veterans group come out and metal detect to see what they might find. We'd love to have you. Come on out when you're ready. We had our second property. The original 1936 battle marker commemorating the Battle of Medina has always puzzled me. Today, it sits at the intersection of 281 and Martinez-Losoya Road on the campus of Southside High School, about a mile south of the Medina River, which also places it about a half mile from El Carmen Church, where a long attested tradition holds that the royalist dead from the Battle of Medina are buried. The problem is, I can't for the life of me figure out why that marker was placed where it was placed. I spent an entire day one time in the, in the Catholic archives in Austin, digging through the files of the 1936 Texas Centennial Commission, but I couldn't find any correspondence or discussion of the placement of that 1936 battle marker. It is fitting, however, that a battle marker should sit on the campus of Southside ISD. Some of the students who attend Southside are the direct descendants of the very people that fought in the Battle of Medina. This legacy is captured today in their most recently named school, the Miguel Menchaca Early Childhood Education Center. And the man who pushed the hardest for Southside to recognize Miguel Menchaca was Dan Arriano. Mr. Arriano today sits on the Bear County Historical Commission and has long been one of the most vocal advocates of remembering the Battle of Medina. So I called Mr. Arriano one day and told him what we were up to with Avar. He was thrilled, and though aging himself was just as energetic and upbeat as Judge Tonoff had been, Mr. Arellano recommended that I speak to Southside ISD about engaging them in the search, because in the past they'd allowed him to do some high-level surveys, which was a great idea. Only once I tried to look up the people that Mr. Arellano had referred me to at Southside, none of them worked there anymore. So one day I just walked into the district office, which during COVID could get you some really cockeyed looks, but the kind receptionist there didn't run me off. In fact, she immediately called back and invited forward her director of public relations. Randy Escamilla. Randy has one of those faces that you swear you've seen before. In the case of Randy, though, it's because you have seen it before.
2: .org, that's all one word, and along the way, you just might meet some wonderful people, too. Reporting live downtown, I'm Randy Escamilla, News 4
0: San Antonio.
2: Great job, Randy. Thank you.
0: Randy had spent 13 years as a newscaster for WAI, something he only confessed to me after watching me rack my brain for about three minutes trying to remember where I'd met him. For the last seven years, however, Randy has embraced his role at Southside as a chance to really connect with a community that, frankly, gets overlooked a lot in San Antonio. It's the only school district in the San Antonio area, he reminded me, without an HEB. And yet it's a school district that is increasingly connected to its history. Its logo and artwork today features both a painting of the Battle of Medina and a picture of Mission Espada, from whose mission school the district is descended. And with a journalist's ear for a good story, Randy loved our project. He wasted no time in getting us in front of the superintendent, Mr. Rolando Ramirez. Mr. Ramirez also loved it, particularly as a way to bring history to life and get his students involved in the project. Because it's a pretty cool and, again, energizing idea when you think about it. The idea that your school might not just be a place where you study history, but a place that might be sitting on top of it. And sitting as it did right in between the 1936 battle marker and El Carmen Church, it seemed to me more than reasonable to believe that some evidence of something related to the battle might be found there. And heck, even if it wasn't, it would be a great way to engage with the community and maybe even recruit some more volunteers for Avar for future surveys. Property number three was now confirmed.
1: Uh, Before we get started,
2: I just want to thank you guys for showing up tonight. We really appreciate it, Um, you guys that made it. Uh, Our speaker of the night, we're going to get it started tonight. Brandon Tillman, let him talk about himself a little
0: bit. At 6 p.m. on Friday, August the 13th, Martin Gonzalez, chair of the Atascosa County Historical Commission, called to order a roundtable of 50 people. Crammed into the old lemming Texas schoolhouse to talk about the Battle of Medina. All right, well, everybody, thanks again so much for coming. This is an incredible turnout for the discussion of a lost battlefield from 200 years ago. The, the passion that I have for the project comes from the fact that I've worked in Mexico for many years. I still work in Mexico. I find this battle to be a battle of continental importance. I mean, it, this this is what kept the Battle of Mexican Independence, the War for Mexican Independence, alive for several years, and so. It gets lost, though, kind of in both of our histories, both in Texas history and in Mexican history. It gets lost in Mexican history because Texas eventually isn't a part of Mexico. It gets lost in Texas history a little bit, too, because it gets overshadowed by the events of 1835-36. But it is the largest battle in Texas history. It is the bloodiest battle in Texas history. You know, you guys probably know this, but I'm going to go ahead. The Atascosa County Historical Commission has been hosting their Battle of Medina Symposium for nearly 30 years now. Martin wanted to do something a little different this year, however he wanted to hold a round table, an open discussion of all the theories and accounts and clues regarding the battle location to try to bring everything out into the light, especially before our team went out and committed time and resources to surveying any particular location, to crowdsource it, to once again use that new word for the very old idea of just trying to collect as much data as possible. The event was a blast. We reviewed together all of the old primary accounts of the battle, uh, we, we found some new sources. Here's a gentleman named Eric Negron bringing to light a new source from
2: 1898. Uh, when I read that book, towards the end, like the third page towards the end, I read a comment like, God protect the souls who died at the,
3: at, uh, at Creek. Okay. So this is, I'm a internet scavenger, so this is an old, uh, uh, the old internet, and i looked it up PSHN, and I've since gone back, and I can't find it.
0: That's interesting. You said it's from the early 1900s or something? From uh, God, and, 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 and the line that the gentleman is quoting is that in that article, he said, the judge says, God bless the souls that died on Guyana's Creek. We reviewed each other's maps. Here's pilot Steve Brown presenting his proposed location based on extrapolations from Stephen F. Austin's quite accurate latitude and longitude markings.
2: So I've got a magnifying glass, and I was looking in the in the uh, margins of of Stephen F. Austin's map. I used that information uh, to to get the uh, latitude and longitude coordinates of his cross sabers from map.
0: And we argued with each other a little bit too. Here's longtime scholar of the Caminos Reales Al McGraw.
2: Uh, no, no, that's the other thing I was going to talk about. That, that's not quite right. Um, can you, on one of your maps, on one of your maps uh, Stephen F. Boston map, um, it actually had the name of the road, and I couldn't read it from back there, I got number one. I know that a lot of people have thought that Lasoya was a major crossing, but I'm not even sure Lasoya was there at this time. And quite frankly, the maps I've seen uh, show it as the road from Mission
3: San Juan to Las Cabas.
0: It's actually a really big thing that Al said there, by the way. I'm not sure if you caught it. That the Lasoya Crossing might not even have been a major crossing at the time of the battle. If that was true, it would radically reduce the radius of the search area. Because if we could definitively say that the Republicans had crossed the Medina River at the old Pleasanton Road or at the old Laredo Crossing, well then at least we had one data point fixed for the morning of the battle. Interestingly, at least from my perspective, Al comment aligned with some of the thinking that I had seen recently from our old friend Joe Alvarez, known initially to you listeners of this podcast as Joseph Bejar. Well, Joe still lives with his family in Greece, but that has done nothing to temper his passion for this battle. And his sister, Naomi, was at the round table, along with Mark Wolf their collaborator on this project, and another of the co-discoverers of the lost mission of San Seba. Well, Joe's work had increasingly come to focus as well on the idea that the Republican army had crossed at the Old Pleasanton Road crossing, rather than at the La Soya crossing. And it makes a little more sense, frankly. For one, if you believe that the Republicans camped at Laguna de Espada two days before the battle, and that Laguna de Espada is modern-day Mitchell Lake, well, that really puts them closer to Old Pleasanton Road than to La Soya. And frankly, because it's a little more northerly than La Soya, a campsite on Old Pleasanton Road would be a better spot to keep watch over both crossings of the Medina to make sure the Royalists didn't get around them somehow. In fact, probably the biggest single change of mind that I had after that whole evening in Atascosa County was to really push me toward the idea of the Old Pleasanton Road having been the main thoroughfare at that time which also then had the indirect effect of pulling the potential battle location north several miles in my mind, right up into the area where Trumbo, Inglehart, and Old Pleasanton Roads meet. And I'm sorry, this is a poor format as a podcast for talking about these specific place names, but pull up a map and or pull up some of the old episodes on our San Antonio Report archive, and and you can see what I'm talking about here. But what I'm really getting at, and the more important thing, is that this area that we were being drawn to, frankly, Was the area that locals had continuously tried to push me toward from the beginning (laughs) people like fred martinez descendant of one of the original land grantees in the area his cousin carmela ferrer 80 year old parishioner at el carmen church uh, and even the receptionist at southside high school before she had passed me to randy escamilla the receptionist miss gonzalez had pulled me aside to tell me you know the battle wasn't fought here though it was fought over on old pleasanton road near where it crosses 1604 but more than anything What the Battle of Medina Roundtable had really confirmed was that we have long ago reached the limits of what the analysis of documents and what arguing in air-conditioned rooms could settle about this battlefield. The roads analysis is what we have to go by because it's all we have. What would be great is if we could start with artifacts somewhere and then try try and go there because that would make all this discussion kind of moot. We all agreed that we had to get out there and put boots on the ground and shovels in the dirt which is why it was particularly exciting at the end of the conference when a gentleman who I'll call Mr. H came up to me and introduced himself. Because Mr. H was someone that I'd been wanting to meet for a long time. Mr. H actually had a Battle of Medina marker on his property. It was the marker installed in 2013 by Robert Marshall, another amateur historian of the battle, who had done some surveys of his own on Mr. H's property a decade prior. So far, we had access to properties near two of the three battle markers. There was Dr. J's property near the 2006 battle marker, and there was Southside High School near the 1936 marker. But it bothered me that we didn't have access to a property on or near the third one, which is why it was so exciting to have Mr. H come forward, and he was totally open to having us come out and look. The mystery of the battlefield and its possible connection to his own property had always intrigued him as well. Actually, he tells the story that when he went to buy the property, his wife initially refused to move on to it with him. Something about it gave her the chills. And so it was only after Mr. H agreed to raise a cross on the property that she would agree to live there. So sure enough, right after they brought the property, first thing Mr. H did was he went out there, poured a slab, sank a cross in it, and being an electrician by trade, he even ran lights to it to light it up at night. The challenge with accessing this site is, was that the man who had placed the battle marker, Mr. Robert Marshall, was challenging to deal with. We agreed with Mr. H that we didn't want to do anything on the property without having Mr. Marshall on board, out of respect for the work that he'd put into his claim. But the landowner, Mr. H, agreed to work with us on trying to bring Mr. Marshall along. The truth, however, was that I wasn't even sure by this point that we'd be able to get to Mr. H's property in our first season of field work with Avar, the veteran archaeologist. In our planning discussions with Stephen Humphreys, the CEO of Avar, we'd settled on about a three week working season in early February of 2022. February was ideal for several reasons. It was after deer hunting season, but the grass was still all dead, which makes getting the metal detectors closer to the ground easier. And plus, it's just a far more pleasant and snake free time of year than any other to be out walking around through the pasture. But if we spent three to five days on each site, which is about what we estimated it would take a team of 12 volunteers to cover 10 acres, well, then we'd be lucky to knock out four sites in three weeks. And if we found anything on any of those sites, God willing, will it slow us down even more. But you should know, by the way, that I'm building this up, that it wasn't going to be that easy. A month or two after the roundtable, I got this voicemail.
2: Mr. Seal, my name is... You sent me a... uh Surface access agreement on place. I don't see where you're paying anything. Please stay off of the property. Keep all your people off the property. If, if they come on the property, we will file trespassing charges.
0: Thank you. If you had trouble understanding it, I did too. But that was the voice of a very ill-tempered local lawyer who was calling in representation of Dr. J, that first landowner that I had talked about. And the the strength of his response and kind of the shortness of of what he had said led me to believe there must have been some kind of misunderstanding. He was talking about a payment for metal detecting surveys. And of course, there wasn't a payment. There was no revenue coming from the activity. But he also seemed to be under some kind of impression that we were imminently going to descend on Dr. J's property. When in fact, we weren't planning to be out there for many months still. The, The context for his call was that he had been reviewing the access agreement that we use with all of our private landowners which really is designed to protect the landowners. It says that our volunteers can't sue the landowner if they sprain an ankle or get bit by a snake out there, but also that that we can't be on the property without the landowner's consent and that we can't publish anything on social media or anywhere else without the landowner's permission either. It also clarifies in big, bold letters that nothing in the agreement confers any kind of property rights on us or Avar, and it reaffirms that, quote, any artifacts found on the property belong to the owner, end quote. We hadn't had any problems with the form so far with other landowners, so I just figured the attorney didn't really understand what was going on, and I took the charitable U and gave him a call. Stay off the property, the attorney said before I'd even finished introducing myself. Excuse me? We're not going on the property anytime soon, I said. We're talking about doing archaeological surveys in February. Do not enter the property or we will press charges, he shouted back. We're not entering anyone's property without permission, I tried to clarify. You're not entering his property at all, He said. I asked him, have you spoken to your client about this? But that question really set off the lawyer. Don't you question my relationship with my clients. If you set foot on that property, we will press charges for trespass. All right, all right. I backed off. Stay off the property, he said one more time for good measure, and he hung up. But like I said, I wish I could tell you these kind of things just roll off my shoulder, but, but they really don't, especially because I really enjoyed getting to know Dr. J, but I didn't really know how to act after this. Luckily, a, a couple weeks later, he called me which was good because I'd been too afraid to reach out to him directly. But I was kind of hoping he was going to tell me when he called that his lawyer had been out of line or something, but but no, the lawyer had done a number on Dr. J and scared him pretty good. He told him that the government could take his property if we found anything. I told Dr. J that that wasn't right, and I referred him to the Texas Historical Commission's Archaeology Property Owner's Guide. The Historical Commission doesn't have any sort of eminent domain authority in the state of Texas, and... Plus, I told him this is Texas by God, and no one could take his land if he didn't want him to, and that, frankly, the access agreement said as much in big, bold letters. Regardless, though, I knew that our access to Dr. J's property at that point was shot. You can't change a Texan's mind once a lawyer has told them that they could lose their land. Anyway, I thanked him for calling, and I told him goodbye. That night, my wife and I drank a bottle of Mustang grape wine that Dr. J had given me a few weeks before. The wine was really good it was sweet and cool and maybe even a little bubbly it didn't do much to mitigate my disappointment or alleviate my stress however because i suddenly had a big gap in the schedule that i needed to fill but what also really ate at me was the fear that what if dr j's property was the side of the battle and now we would never know it really highlighted the slim probabilities we had of success here not only at finding a 20-acre battlefield across a 20,000-acre search area, but moreover, of finding the landowner that owned the 20 acres that was willing to work with us. But differently, our scholarship could be perfectly sound, but we could miss the battlefield entirely just because we rubbed some landowner the wrong way. Hmm. The months leading up to February of 2022 were a stressful, hectic blur. Avar was busy working logistics for a dozen veterans who had arrived soon to help us. Principal investigator Clint McKinsey from UTSA's Center for Archaeological Research was deep into filling out the antiquities permits, scopes of work, and the other methodologies needed to guide Avar's work. And I was trying to scrape together the money to pay for it all, which came together at the last minute thanks to listeners like you, so thank you all so much for that. In some ways, this podcast is my report back to you of how we spent your money and what we found with it. What I wasn't able to do in those last months, however, was make any progress on securing other properties to replace Dr. J's on our schedule. But there was no more time to wait. It was February 2022. This was our window, our best time of the year to conduct these surveys, and we couldn't put it off any longer. It is February 1st, 2022 and I'm pulling out of my driveway getting on the road to head down to the start of our metal detecting surveys at Southside ISD. So last night we met with Avar and all of their volunteers. It was so awesome to see the enthusiasm of, of the volunteers too. So most of them are not from Texas, only two of them are from Texas. So I don't know if I've mentioned yet that I hadn't ever actually met Dr. Stephen Humphreys in person until three days before we started digging for artifacts. All of my coordination with Stephen and Avar had been done via Zoom and across an ocean in a six-hour time difference. He'd been in England finishing his PhD when COVID had locked him down. And I'll just say it here, I didn't really know Stephen that well before this project. And I had just raised $60,000, largely from friends and fans of this podcast, trusting that these guys could do what they said they were going to do. So I was a little nervous showing up on the first day of work, but I didn't need to have been. Dr. Humphreys and his operations director, Kenzie Burkhart, and twelve veterans showed up at Southside High School on February first, twenty twenty two, at seven forty five AM sharp, unloaded their gear, and they deployed. Before I knew what was happening, the Avar volunteers were off and working. It's a beautiful, sunny February morning. About a dozen volunteers are working in a small area behind the LaSoya Middle School football field on the city's far south side. The area is cordoned off with small flags. So this spot, in our reckoning, has the longest continuous connection to the Battle of Medina. So that's TPR's Jerry Clayton. Here's Justin Horn with KSAT 12 reminding us how close Southside High School is to an important landmark associated with the battle. One of the reasons they're digging where they are today is because it's just a few hundred yards away from this historic site, the Church of Nuestra Señora del Carmen. The church has a very well and pretty continuously attested history as the location of the burial of the Spanish dead. (laughs) And here's Dr. Stephen Humphreys talking about the perspective that his veterans bring.
3: When it comes to battlefields in particular, no one understands battlefields better than veterans do, so they bring in a level of appreciation uh, that civilians don't necessarily have.
0: Clint McKenzie and Peggy Wall with UTSA's Center for Archaeological Research had been out there on site the day before with their GPS units and small orange flags, marking off 20 meter by 20 meter blocks. The plan was for Avar to split into three four man teams. Each team would have a MindLab CTX 3030 metal detector and would walk down a two meter wide lane. Every time the metal detector got a hit, the other members of the team would drop a yellow or a blue flag in the ground. Yellow for iron, blue for lead. And then they would dig up every hit. No matter how big, no matter how small, or how improbable, every hit had to be dug up, bagged, tagged, and its location logged with a handheld tremble GPS unit. And then once that two meter lane was complete, the detectorist crews would skip over three meters and survey the next two meter wide lane. The goal was at least 20% coverage of each 20 meter by 20 meter block with the option to intensify up to 100% coverage in the event we started finding things that looked like battle artifacts.
2: I hear vibration. Yeah,
0: you dig out this right here. It was pretty slow going on the first day.
3: That's it right there.
0: So right there you see the it? Bucket.
3: I think I saw I
0: bucket it. On the front. Yeah. All right. All righty.
3: It's, uh, hey. Not bailing wire. Piece of a tin can. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Lock plate. <laughs> Nothing to ride home with them. It's not like... Can't tell if it's just Harper's tin or Ferry or. 1813. <laughs> it says.
0: But the downtime was a good opportunity <laughs> to get to know the Avar volunteers. And to hear about their yeah. deep and very relevant experience.
2: Or <laughs> Sometimes it's, fine. it's fun finding like a cool. little. The old condom tins. <laughs> <laughs> this is the, like condoms. You're like, what? I Does don't want to touch that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I've never seen those.
1: Like, it's like a sardine can, but it's for condoms. Yeah, yeah, the metal that's, cans. That's it's cool. funny, like in uh, if you go to Victorian
2: like dumps and stuff like that, I've seen, I've seen a few people who are like, "What's this?" And like, "Oh, that's a, it's a ceramic dildo." <laughs>
1: oh wow!
3: Like, we find them really an in England, like that bronze ones. Really? Oh yeah, all different shapes, sizes. I mean, so not funny.
0: frequently, but... The dozen veterans represented all four branches of service. They came from throughout the United States.
2: Where are, where are y'all uh, coming from? Yeah, <laughs> Yeah. Boston. Kansas. South Texas. Or South Texas? Whereabouts? Where McAllen, Michigan. McKenna. Oh, yeah, I know. Yeah. Uh, Minnesota. Minnesota. New York, originally. New York. New Hampshire. Boston. Boston. San Antonio.
0: <laughs> there were some moments of excitement that first day, such as when we turned up our first actual metal ball.
1: Did you de- did you definitely like pinpoint on the surface ar- around it? I don't know if that shot. <laughs>
0: yeah, I don't either, Like at least not modern
3: shot, you know, like... Did Clint see that yet?
1: He did yeah. see it, yeah.
3: That's really corroded for modern shot. Oh. Right. So cool. But yeah. that's definitely... And
0: here you can hear us or... trying to turn this into a colonial artifact, but It was pretty obviously modern. Around lunchtime, we brought out the 7th grade Texas history students from the local middle school. At 4 o'clock, we brought out some of the high schoolers who were enrolled in a Mexican-American history class. By the end of the first day, all of us, though, could agree on one
3: thing. Seal is a total jerk. And <laughs> cut <laughs> take two. That guy does not know where this battlefield is. <laughs> <laughs> Kids, your turn. <laughs> I don't know much, but I know one thing. <laughs> you're actually right. I mean that's a true statement. <laughs> I have no idea the battlefield is. That's
0: why we're here. The truth is it was a lot of fun. But with each passing minute, more and more ground had been covered. And nothing even remotely looking like evidence of a battle had turned up. To be honest the Southside High School location had always been the longest shot in terms of finding the battlefield. Despite its proximity to the 1936 battle marker and the El Carmen Church, Southside High School didn't really fit any of the documentary evidence of the battlefield. More troubling for me, however, was that at the pace we were going, we'd be done at Southside within a few days. And then what if the next site proved just as unpromising? We only had access to two sites at this point, We could be done with all of our field work in six days' time if things kept going the way they were going. What in the world was I going to do then with all these volunteers that had flown in from all over the country? 91-year-old Judge Tonoff came to the rescue. I told him about Dr. J's lawyer, but with his usual cheer, Judge Tonoff was unfazed. He told me he'd help find another site. And so this time, he called up the son of a man who had traipsed around Attascosa County with him a generation before, searching for signs of the battle. And sure enough, Judge Tonoff was able to win him over. The landowner, let's call him Mr. K, agreed to meet with me. And so that very same day, I left the Avar folks to what they were doing and headed over to meet him. Mr. K's property sat right on the old Camino Real. It was obvious from all the old maps. And it had been in his family for several generations now. But Mr. K still owned the old home place, which he was remodeling on his own. Framing, sheetrock, electric. All of it, too, with a pronounced limp from a workplace injury that had forced him to retire early. We got to talking, and he drove me around his property. Down in the back, there was a curious depression that ran more or less right along where the old Camino Real had run. Could that be the depression of an old, worn-down road? I asked him if he'd ever found any artifacts in the area. He said no, but he'd had some strange experiences, to be sure. Mr. K's wife had seen a vision of Mr. K's mother on the property back there, a woman she'd never met, and of Mr. K's grandfather. And then the first time he showed his sister-in-law a photo of this property, she recoiled and said, ah, someone died there. Anyway, this alone wasn't evidence enough to want to base a week's work of archaeological surveys on, but Mr. K's proximity to the 2005 battle marker and the fact that we still didn't have anywhere else to go made it appealing. And so I asked him if he'd be on board with us coming to metal detect on his property in a week or two. He said yes. I said great. I left him a signed access agreement and drove off. As I drove back to Southside High School, it took me back by the 2013 battle marker on Mr. H's property, the man who had come up to me after the Battle of Medina roundtable. In the intervening months, neither Mr. H nor myself had been able to fully persuade Robert Marshall, the biggest proponent of this battle site, to let us metal detect around his marker, however. or Moreover, it's that Mr. Marshall had some oddly specific and frankly to our mind, self-defeating requirements. Namely, he wanted us to search one 200-meter line with 500 metal detector man-hours, which is like 62 eight-hour days if you're counting, before he would allow us to search anywhere else on the property. And I still don't quite understand the thinking, and I I told him as much because I felt like it was limiting the chances of us finding evidence of a battlefield across the entire grid. He was also very insistent that we pay him $2,800 for the purchase of iron replica cannons, which he wanted to place near his marker. That, too, obviously we couldn't do, since all the funds we had raised were earmarked for the search itself, and paying folks for access could compromise the integrity of anything we found on the property. Mr. H., the landowner, remained hopeful, however, that we could convince Mr. Marshall and encourage me not to lose heart. So we agreed to continue working on him. I returned to Southside High School for the rest of the day, feeling a little better that we would at least have a third site to search on Mr. K's land and hopefully if we needed it, a fourth on Mr. H's property near Robert Marshall's marker. And when I showed up, Clint, Stephen and Kinsey gave a good recap of the first day.
2: Okay, great. So
0: recap for the day, how'd we do? Positives, negatives, lessons learned. You're on camera. <laughs> uh,
1: I thought it, I thought it was all kinds of positives. There were a few little tweaks to our collection strategies, and you know, you know, I, I think everything's going fine.
3: Uh, we dug 173 hits today, uh, which is really a pretty incredible number for, for the number of bets we have out here. Um, for okay. example, at Saratoga in one season, we did a thousand, and that's over three weeks.
1: I think that the vets are just really happy to be out here again, yeah. and it's a really interesting and fun first project to kick off the year, and it's early in the year, so I just felt like they had really good energy, and yeah. um, I think they're excited that you know for the first time people will have answers about this field no matter what. So. Yeah, yeah, I think the the hype is high.
0: It was day two of our digs. I'm going to tell you, archaeology is not for thrill-seekers. By day two, the monotony, and frankly, the lack of results, was I becoming a little disappointing. It
2: would be amazing to yeah. find a battle <laughs> Anything, anything that looks like
0: a munition at this point, we're going to be happy yeah. with. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think once, once you know, like we your this. well, no, it stops your project.
0: We consoled ourselves we that
1: they put in the paper that archaeology is not what you want to find, is what you do find.
0: And that the most important things about these kinds of projects are it's
1: the friends we've made
2: along the way. Yes. Well, go home. <laughs> Come on, <laughs>
1: the
0: Which start. is the kind of corny truth that you can only admit out loud if you pretend like you were joking. By day three, however, when a terrible cold front had moved in, the lack of progress was making folks a little bit short.
3: Someone else is gonna want to want have to
1: look Nope. I I know, honestly, I, I think there's just a few things here that might actually be worthy of getting out of the bag.
0: The community nearby, however, continued to be incredibly supportive. Parishioners from El Carmen Church, descendants, many of them, of the participants in the Battle of Medina, came out to watch us. Students from the middle school and high school came out again on a subsequent day to tag along with our veterans and observe what they were doing. And we were already coordinating with Superintendent Rolando Ramirez and Randy Escamilla from Southside ISD to set up a public forum where we could come present our findings to the community. It looked like it was going to be a pretty short forum, however. All we'd found in three days was a hand-forged late 19th century chain, about 73 cents worth of loose change, and some shotgun head stamps. So we wrapped up our search there at Southside, pulled up our flags, filled back in our holes, this was actually a football practice field, by the way, and we promised to take good care of it. Bagged up our stuff and prepared the next day to head out. So I showed up late to our first day of work on the second site, the 1824 flag property on Guyenas Creek. I had a good reason, though, other than that I was still trying to hold down a paying day job. The reason was that I'd forgotten to arrange for a porta potty for us. A few phone calls fixed that issue, but it meant that when I showed up, the Avar crews had already covered about a quarter of the property. And based on the very, very low number of flags in the ground, it looked like they hadn't found much of anything at all. My expectations were low then when I walked up and yet their excitement was through the roof. I soon understood why. All right guys, tell us what we found so
3: far. You got that thing? It's on, it's on. Yeah, we're on. (laughs) You got that thing. I just always assume it's on. (laughs) That makes sense. nervous. (laughs) Nah, so so far we found two uh, small caliber musket balls uh, in the same 20 by 20 meter block, which is obviously exciting to us because it could potentially be Uh, possibly a periphery of the battlefield. Definitely not the main concentration. It could also just as easily be uh, munitions for hunting purposes because these are not the 69 caliber rounds that we're really looking for from the Spanish forces. Uh, It could be later rounds. So there's no way to determine from these two rounds that this is associated with the battle in any way. But the methodology that we're using is built to find material like that, and then to expand coverage and increase the rate of coverage so that we're covering more ground, more thoroughly, so that we can see if there's anything adjacent to those musket balls that might indicate that concentration that we're looking for that would signal the Battle of Medina.
0: Perfect. So we've densified the search at this point, right? We're going down to essentially 100% coverage in this area where we- I had started to mentally prepare myself for the very real possibility that we would find nothing at all in the course of three weeks out here. And now I had the chance to hold in my hand Two lead, period-appropriate caliber balls. And they were found right within musket shot of Guyana's Creek. That spot that shows up in so many ways and so many different accounts of the battle. Some folks have theorized that it was the Republican ambush site. Others have theorized that it was the Royalist ambush site. But finding actually some potential munitions here now made it very, very real. There was something else very real about these musket balls. They were impacted, which is a fancy archaeological term to mean that they had hit something or someone. The musket balls motivated us to call in a subject matter expert. So we got on the phone with Ty Smith, a retired US Army colonel and colonial munitions expert, who agreed to come out and have a look at them. That, by the way, that's the sound of a grown man giggling with excitement.
2: I'm afraid to break it. There you go. There it oh,
0: and that's the sound of musket balls rolling around Let's on the tailgate.
2: It. It's, <laughs> I can't tell if it's molded or it's it is, It's got a sprue mark on it. Does it have a sprue? Yeah. I don't see a seam, though. Oh, there it is. There's yeah. a seam.
0: With respect to the Battle of Medina, we're fortunate in that the victorious Royalist General wrote up a pretty comprehensive inventory of the munitions that he used and the munitions he captured in his after-action report. Here's Ty Smith summarizing the kind of calibers you'd expect to find based on the archival evidence.
2: So we're, 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 we're thinking of the typical infantry arm would be the Brown Bess uh, in a caliber from about three-quarter inch down to a point. Six two, six three, somewhere right in there, and so that I mean that's the first thing I see when I'm looking at this. Going, holy cow! Now keep in mind.
0: Ty Smith then pulled out his calipers and measured each one of the musket balls.
2: And this is the right size. It's a half a ball, but it's the just about the six. It's point six three, which is right in the yeah, right in the uh, ballpark. For the-
0: course he also clarified that you still got to go back to the lab and make sure that the specific gravities are right for the lead alloys of the period but
2: so we'll have to do specific gravity to know for sure but yeah this is what we're looking for this little one is i think later
0: yeah we were all pretty excited after lunch we went back to work and redoubled our efforts which meant three things one we intensified our coverage up to 100 percent of each block Two, we brought out the pulse induction unit. The pulse induction unit could see down about three feet into the sand of the Encinal de Medina, as opposed to the 12 or 18 inches that our metal detectors were getting. And three, we brought out the big guns. My nine-year-old son and seven-year-old daughter. I have a kid or two here that really wants to dig a hole. I suspect right. you guys need a hole or two
3: dug, don't you?
1: Oh. You sure do. I'll Come do. here, Katy. Wow, we're really lucky you guys showed up.
0: Naturally, they became experts within minutes. Back
1: up with the shovel. There you go.
2: Smart boy.
3: If I was a betting man, I think it's still in the hole, pal. So why why don't you check the hole? Yeah. Okay, so instead of going in at an angle this time, cat, go
1: straight down. Okay? All right. Right here on this edge. Okay? Got it. I found some wire. Cool.
2: You think
0: we can sell it to Phil Collins? (laughs) Alamo wire.
1: (laughs) All right, you ready, Memo? uh, Go ahead and check the hole for me first.
0: Anyway, thanks for indulging that. That really doesn't advance the story, but I think it's pretty cute. and, And it's a good representation of how gracious Avar's veterans were. And it's also not a bad way to transition into what happened next, after the initial excitement of finding those two balls. It got real, real slow again. We found nothing else the next day or the next or the next. And believe me, folks were trying. Mostly, though, we were just finding the usual ag trash, fence nails, wire, pieces of can or can slaw, as they call it. One interesting artifact, but not from the Battle of Medina, was an 1854 Liberty Dime punched through like a button or something. We also found a small meteorite and lots of hematite. And so let's talk about hematite. These uncannily perfect little spheres that actually here's Clint McKenzie talking about them.
1: Yeah. So it, it just describes anything that has some amount of iron in it and it can be like trace amounts like that probably maybe that might be trace amounts. Like they did find one small piece this morning that, it was reading, you know, something. But huh. it looks like a piece of. You know, to me, it's, it looks like a, piece, a rock. So maybe a piece of hematite. How do they you form know, it? I mean, in some they case, form in sand, yeah. and you know, they just they naturally, you know, you know, con- they they form nodules and concretions in the sand. I mean, it's uncanny. They they will form like almost perfect spheres. Oh well, I mean, they can f- form spheres. They yeah. can form, you know, you know ovoids, ellipses, the you know, things that are lumped together.
0: The point being, they're naturally occurring, but man. They look like musket balls. And as Clint will tell you, he's answered a lot of calls over the years to South Texas landowners who have brought him hematite, hoping or thinking that they had buckets of musket balls they just found. The other thing that we found in abundance was shotgun head stamps. Dozens of them. Which, again, it's not that novel to find shotgun head stamps in South Texas, but it was important because you can date shotgun head stamps very precisely. And the cool thing was we were finding head stamps dating back to the 1880s and maybe before. Which what that meant was it was validating the methodology. It was validating that our metal detectors were able to find artifacts that were 150 years old or older. And additionally, that 200-year-old things were still close enough to the surface to be detected. That had always kind of been in doubt too. People had wondered if maybe metal objects could subside over the years through the sandy soil of the Ensenal. But as exciting as that all was, and as exciting as that initial day finding two musket balls had been, after four and five days of not finding anything else, it was time to start thinking about moving on. So I called up the next landowner, Mr. K, the retired gentleman who was restoring his family's old homestead, uh, backed by Judge Tanoff's 2006 battle marker. And here again, I'm going to bring the story back to the porta potty which is not glamorous, but the hard fact is that some of the most challenging parts of these kind of projects are the logistics. And one of the most important pieces of logistics is bringing the porta potty with you. Sounds trivial, but a dozen people working all day long in one spot, it matters. So I called Mr. K to ask him where we should put the porta potty when we moved on to his property the next day. He hesitated for a second. You still there, Mr. K? Uh yeah, sure. Uh, I suppose you can just put it back there in the field where y'all are gonna be. You know what? I'll tell you what? Let me call you back in a second. And he hung up. That was strange. My heart sank. Because I could already kind of tell what was coming next. He called me back about ten minutes later. Yes, sir? Well, Brandon, we've been thinking about it and talking to our lawyer. Gulp. And he says I really shouldn't have y'all out here, that if y'all find anything, the government can take it away. God Almighty. Mr. K, I'd encourage you to challenge your attorney on that. This is Texas, by God. You own your land from heaven to hell and come hell or high water. Come and take it. You know what I mean? And I'll lay it out for you here too, dear listener. I've talked this through with a lot of folks by now, and here's what I've found. The state of Texas always has a right of eminent domain that they can use to force someone to sell their property for a legitimate public purpose. But more precisely, it is only specific agencies of the state that have eminent domain dot, for example, or Parks and Wildlife. The Texas Historical Commission does not have eminent domain authority. Now, unfortunately, there are stories out there from many, many decades ago of Parks and Wildlife Department declaring eminent domain and purchasing private property that way. And in some cases, it turns out, some of those properties had historic sites on them. But Parks and Wildlife Department hasn't done anything like that in a long, long time, Do You know why? Because truthfully, they don't have the funds today to maintain the properties that they do have. Parks and Wildlife has no desire to forcibly acquire more property that they are going to have to pay to maintain. Which is just to reiterate that you place your property under no additional risk of being taken by the government than it's already under today by allowing an archaeological survey to occur on your property. And in fact, I will tell you, that by having a declared archaeological site on your property, you actually decrease substantially the likelihood that any road or pipeline is going to go through your property. Take my word from this. I've been laying pipelines for a while now. We go out of our way to avoid archaeological sites. It's too much extra work. So please, think about that the next time some nice young podcaster rings at the gate asking to conduct archaeological surveys on your property. All that said, I have learned pretty convincingly by now that once a landowner hears from a lawyer that his land is at risk of being taken by the government, even if it's not true, that they'll never unhear that. So I didn't fight it. I thanked Mr. K for his time, and I let it go. Which meant that we were here, back on the 1824 flag property, over six, seven, eight days into our digs, with nowhere else to go. Stephen, Kenzie, Clinton, and I conferred We felt like we were losing momentum, that morale even was flagging amongst the crews. A few of the veterans had already had to head home because they'd used up their vacation or their spouse's patience by that point. One had actually even been called up as a result of the Ukraine crisis, a reminder of the commitment, involvement, and disruption to life that comes from being in the armed services. The team agreed to spend just one more day or so detecting the edges of some of the tanks and more irregular areas of the 1824 flag property that we hadn't hit so far well, we figured out what we were going to do next.
3: If we if we go through all this 100% and we don't get any other musket balls, then
0: yeah, it's not that interesting right. Yep. We took advantage of the extra day that we had on the 1824 property to dig back through the other artifacts that we'd found. In addition to the two impacted large musket balls, we'd actually also found a smaller non-impacted ball as well. Typical musket balls of the period measured about 60 caliber plus. This ball measured only about 38 caliber, or 0.38 hundredths of an inch, which was too small for common infantry rounds of the period, or so we initially thought. It turns out, however, that smaller rounds were not unheard of at this time. In fact, they were becoming quite common. And some of them were even referenced in Arredondo's post action report. For one, Spanish cavalry often carried escopetas, which you shouldn't confuse with our term for shotguns. The better translation would probably be carbines. These fired 50 ish caliber rounds. And the Republican irregulars would have been carrying a wide smattering of civilian arms, including some very early rifles, which often fired rounds smaller than 40 caliber. Further, Stephen Humphreys with Avar also told us that back up at their work at the Battle of Saratoga, they had found in moments of close quarters firing that it wasn't unusual for American militia to fire a buck and ball round. That is, they drop in a smaller caliber piece of buckshot on top of the principal round just to amplify the impact of their shot. And that such buckshot was, in some cases, much smaller even than 38 caliber. So it is funny that, you know, when I had fantasized about the best possible scenario for for finding something as a part of these archaeological digs, it was fantasizing about some great eureka moment. Someone just like pulling a handful of cannonballs out of the ground that were signed by the Royalist General Arredondo, like, you know, the South Texas equivalent of opening King Tut's tomb. But obviously that was never realistic. Ours was a process of slow analysis and slow realization interspersed with very, very occasional moments of exhilaration. So
1: great. close. <laughs> Every time we think we're done, ball. <laughs> great problem to have.
3: Great yeah. problems to have. The last hit out there is going to be a musketball.
0: That's right. We had found another colonial-looking musketball. Less than 200 yards removed from the other two or three we'd found, it was on the edge of one of the charcos that we hadn't really picked up in our grid the first few days. And this one, too, was impacted. All the adrenaline came rushing back. This is what an archaeologist sounds like when he's excited, by the way.
3: Frankly, right now, we've got a, a, a decent site. So we're going to stay here until we can discount this. So,
0: uh, I to- so once again, we intensified our coverage of the area where we'd found the ball. We brought out the big pulse induction unit, and we doubled down our efforts to reevaluate some of the stuff we'd already found, like some of the non-iron, non-lead objects even. I'm talking about brass and bronze artifacts.
1: uh, Some of the stuff that we found, one of the objects, the the little uh, brass um, object that was found yesterday, uh, looks like it may very well be a part of a a powder flask. And it's cleaned up a tiny bit, I'll pass it around. This is an interesting object, Uh, and so whenever you find No, you you remember we started.
0: And in the course of carefully reviewing the artifacts that we'd already pulled from the ground, and in this case, already dismissed as uninteresting, we came across something incredibly, incredibly unique looking. They turned up a little iron ball with a stem on it. The ball didn't really catch anyone's attention at first. Actually, no, no one thought much of it. But after looking at it, after after Clint McKenzie looked at it and shared it, and Kay Hines looked at it, they started sharing it around their archaeologist network. And it came back as a form of of grape shot or bar shot. But what's really fascinating about that is that unlike a musket ball, which a hunter could be using a lead musket ball to hunt deer, bar shot or grape shot is only shot from cannons. A 2.6 centimeter, roughly one inch iron ball, badly rusted with a stem on it like an iron cherry bomb. The renewed excitement of this day or two's activity spun us out in several directions that occupied the next two or three days.
3: The case shot of the grape came from G3 down
0: here. Okay, yeah, all within.
3: Yeah, so it's, I mean, that's not a bad scatter right there, to be mm-hmm. honest. Obviously, we're still looking. We're doing this 100% coverage, uh, including including using the pulse induction unit to see if we can pick up more of that grape shot because that would be really definitive if we yeah. pull that up at this point. So we're being really thorough in this area. Um
0: And at the same time as our luck was turning out in the field in terms of finding artifacts, our luck was turning with landowners as well. I think it was actually as we were excitedly reviewing the piece of potential grape shot that my phone rang with a phone number I didn't recognize from Greece. And it was Joe Alvarez, a.k.a. Joseph Bejar, the long-time, long-distance scholar of the battle. And after several weeks of working on it, Joe Alvarez was calling with good news. He had another landowner for us. And then again, on the same day, Mr. H, the gentleman who came up to me after the Atascosa County Roundtable offering his property for survey, stopped by our digs on the 1824 property and said like he felt like he'd gotten Mr. Robert Marshall on board to let us come search the property. Conditionally, anyway, Mr. Marshall had agreed to meet us at Mr. H's property to test out our equipment to his satisfaction. We were happy to oblige, but we only had one week left at this point. After having spent the last three months stressed about not having enough properties to search, we suddenly were faced with the opposite problem. Too many properties and too little time. I was very sensitive not to leave landowners hanging, particularly ones who had agreed to open their gates to us. I was going to feel a little inadequate if after three weeks of fieldwork, we'd only really covered two sites. But on the other hand, as the fishermen say, you don't leave fish to find fish. And we kept fishing artifacts out of the ground on this 1824 property on the banks of Guyanas Creek. So we decided to stay and spent four of our last five days once again finding a whole lot of nothing. This has been amazing, though.
3: Yeah, I'm surprised actually. You know, they're really coming out here with that same. Level of energy every day, fines
1: or no fines. Just like
0: one or two more pieces of case shot, grape shot, man. Yeah, that's all we, that's all, all we need,
3: that's all we need. It was like that with the musket balls too though.
0: It was Saturday, February 19th. Monday, February 21st would be the last day of our first season of field work with Avar in our search for the battlefield of Medina. In the final week of field work, we had found nothing except a small, roughly 30 caliber unimpacted ball, a drop shot, which the experts were skeptical of being period-appropriate, although we couldn't rule it out. Either way, though, we hadn't found the kind of overwhelming concentration of rounds in one spot that Avar had located up at, for example, the Battle of Saratoga. Which meant that we were basically out of stuff to do. And yet, as we looked back over our work, there was a very obvious pattern that had emerged. All of the artifacts we had found were bumping right up on the neighbor's fence line. In fact, Stephen and Kinsey had been bugging me starting a few weeks earlier to see if we could maybe get onto the neighbor's property, but I'd kind of blown them off at first because it felt like we already had too many sites to keep us busy, which ended up being a little bit false. And then because it felt like there wouldn't be enough time to build the kind of relationship that it takes to convince a stranger to let a dozen archaeological enthusiasts onto their property. Well, look, look, I'll call tomorrow. Um, I don't know him. That's his name. But, um, I've got a phone number for him and, you know, the um and uh yeah i'll see if i can start working through you know generally in my experience it it takes like six months or a year to build (laughs) these kind of relationships and trust and whatever you know but you never know i mean yeah okay yeah i'll call i think it's on my list for tomorrow i'll call him and
3: yeah well just bear that in mind you know
0: well the neighbor answered now you have about five seconds on these kind of cold calls to convince people that you're not a telemarketer and another five seconds to convince them not to hang up just because you're a lunatic for talking about a 200-year-old battle. But this neighbor listened. I told him what we were up to. He said he'd be on his property working cattle and to come on over. So we spent a couple of hours with him, mainly touring his property. It was gorgeous. It not only contained more of the charcos, the so-called watering holes of Gainas, it had some high, firm ground sitting up out of the sandy Encinal de Medina below. As you heard me say, it usually takes months or even years to develop the kind of relationship that convinces someone to let you come onto their property and metal detect it. But something about the cause, or more likely about the Avar guys that were with me, the neighbor was a veteran himself, appealed to the neighbor. And so he gave us a very unexpected but very welcome green light to continue our search grid onto his property. So we spent our last frantic 36 hours taking as much advantage of this as possible. 100% coverage, working down from the fence line of the 1824 flag property, pulse induction unit, everything, all the way down to the creek bed itself. And we found another musket ball, a nice big 60 caliber ball, again, impacted like it hit something. But just that one ball. And then it was all over. Three weeks of work, and we'd taken it down to the wire. Here's me reporting back to the Southside community on May 18th about what we found during our three weeks of work as a kind of a recap for you listeners, too. So in summary of what we found, we found four to six musket balls, four of which very likely of the correct caliber from the period, three of which were impacted, which means, again, to highlight what Clint was saying, they hit something or someone and we found them all within 200 yards of each other. The most interesting, though, is like he said, that piece of grapeshot. And again, to drive it home here, musket balls come out of muskets. You could be out there hunting deer. You could be out there, it could be a small skirmish with, with a Comanche raid or something like that. Grapeshot comes out of a cannon. And, and that's why that's more interesting. And, and that's yet, more, more- one piece of grapeshot isn't sufficient to say that you've found a battlefield. But we'd always known that this was going to be a multi-year effort. And looking back, Our first season of fieldwork here was an unalloyed success. We'd proven that our methodology was working. We'd proven that our scholarship was sound. And it seems like we had proven that something interesting had happened on Guyenas Creek back in the colonial period. As we highlighted even back in the first season of this podcast, Guyenas Creek is the location that figures in some capacity in more accounts than any other. Granted, in some accounts, it's the location of the Republican ambush, and in others, it's the location of the actual battlefield. But the fact that it gets mentioned so many times in so many different ways is strongly suggestive to me of something having happened there. Something which our work seems to have confirmed. And there was one last very positive outcome from our project. Avar commissioned a study to measure the mental health outcomes of their volunteers who participated in their fieldwork. And the results were unequivocal. The evidence showed that we were, quote,
3: we were significantly benefiting uh, the veteran community by reducing the symptoms of stress, anxiety, and depression for those who took part in our projects. We're continuing that study, but the Finding Medina project was a big part of that, and it did continue that trend. So we can say definitively that putting these flags in the ground not only helps us to find. And
0: as I told them, and, and I meant it, I'll still say, though, I mean, this is going out on a limb, I guess, since I'm the amateur here, but like, I mean, y- y- y'all have changed. <laughs> scholarship around the Battle of Medina with this. I mean, like there was no one that had this level of artifact. We're not done either, but there was no one that had this level of actual artifacts that, you know, plausibly date to the period or that's ever found anything approaching this concentration. It's like one. There's still a lot of work left to do though. We need more experts to look at the munitions and help us identify them or question them or compare them to other known artifacts from, from the colonial period. Another interesting idea here is to use the XRF, the X-ray fluorescence analysis process that we talked about in the first season to confirm that these aren't some kind of modern alloys of lead and maybe even to compare the alloys with other artifacts that may come forward. We did some shovel tests up and down the road right away as well on a different occasion, but didn't find anything there. And I'm still holding out hope to bring in some human remains detection dogs. There's a group out of Texas State that is really kind of pioneering the use of these human remain detection dogs to identify historical sites like historical cemeteries and such. We have at least four properties as well that we need to go do more work on. We need to go get Joey Alvarez's property that he secured for us. We need to go look at Mr. Marshall's property, or rather Mr. H's property that hosts the battle site uh, claimed by Mr. Marshall. Third, we still need to get somewhere back on Galvan Creek, near Judge Tonoff's 2006 marker. And we do have some positive leads there. And four, and of course, we're going to try to get back on that property adjacent to the 1824 property where we'd found the musket balls and the grape shot. And to do all this is going to take more resources, more money. So in addition to reporting back to all of you about what we did find in this season, I'm coming back to ask all of you to give us a second chance. We're trying to raise $75,000 this time to go survey all four of these properties. If we can find just a few more musket balls or a few more pieces of grape shot, I really think we've done something pretty material to narrow down the location of this battlefield. And already I feel like we're creating a public good by engaging the community and and giving this opportunity back to the veterans to connect with the past. Because this is kind of the question, right? Is why are we still doing this? (laughs) Why are you spending $75,000 of hard-earned money on trying to find something that happened 200 years ago and whose outcome you certainly can't change? Why do I take time away from my family to keep knocking on doors and getting brushed off by by landowners? Why does someone like Joey Alvarez living on the other side of the planet still spend every free minute thinking about this battle? Why do people like Judge Tonoff wake up at 4 a.m. on Saturday mornings to drive to Austin to research in dusty library stacks? Why do our Avar volunteers take off three weeks of work to travel across the country and run a metal detector over a piece of land that they have no connection to? Reporter Nicholas Frank with the San Antonio Report called me out on this a little bit. Because as you may recall, the conclusion of the first season of this podcast was that if we're looking for a place to commemorate this battle, well, we already have one. It's El Carmen Church. That's the place that's been remembering this battle for more than 200 years. We don't need any better than that. We're not going to do any better than that. But still, if I'm being honest, that's, that's not quite enough, at least not for a history buff. For some of us, feeling rooted in the present requires remaining connected to the past. Finding ways to live through history is, it's a kind of drug, a mild but still pretty consuming addiction. It's one of those activities that just occasionally allows you to transcend time. Like when you read an account that's so vivid that it takes you there. When you hold in your hand a 200-year-old impacted musket ball and know that that little piece of lead changed the trajectory of a human life or of an entire state. It's when you swear that you can see the footprints in the sand of the people who came before you and the ensignal all around you. On February 25th, 2022, just as we were finishing our metal detecting surveys with Avar, Victoria Tonoff, the wife of Judge Robert Tonoff, passed away at 91 years of age after 70 years of marriage to the judge. I only found out about this a few weeks later when I called Judge Tanoff to update him. We had just finished our field work that same week that Mrs. Tanoff passed. All he could do was remember what a great life they'd had, of how beautiful she'd looked at the end. He recalled for me the eulogy that he gave at her graveside, off the cuff. He didn't prepare any remarks. He simply prayed that the words of his mouth and the meditations of his heart be true. And what came to him were the opening words of a Henry Wadsworth Longfellow poem, which he recited to me from memory.
2: Tell me not in mournful numbers, life is but an empty dream. For the soul is dead that slumbers, and things are not what they seem. Life is real, life is earnest, and the grave is not its goal. Dust thou art, to dust returnest, was not spoken of the soul.
0: I thank the judge for everything. He gave me a signed first edition of Forgotten Battlefield, his 1986 book. Actually the tenth copy ever printed. It's now tied as my most prized artifact so far from this search. Right up there with the 1813 Insurgent coin that Fred Martinez gave me last season. As I left Judge Tanoff's house, I looked up the rest of the poem that he had recited. It's called a Psalm of Life, as some of you may recall from high school English classes. The last three stanzas, to be honest, I think capture pretty well the answer to the question of why we keep searching for this battlefield. It's the frustration and the hope and the sadness and the excitement and the enchanting mystery and metaphor of it all. Lives of great men all remind us we can make our lives sublime and departing leave behind us footprints on the sands of time. Footprints that perhaps another sailing o'er life's solemn main, a forlorn and shipwrecked brother seeing shall take heart again. (laughs) Let us then be up and doing with a heart for any fate, still achieving, still pursuing, learn to labor and to wait. Thank you for listening. A quick postscript here. A few months after we'd finished our surveys, I got a text message from collaborator Kay Hines. She'd found a copy of an old letter in her files from a gentleman named Roy Hall. A letter not written to her, written to a Texas historian named Samuel Asbury. Because Roy Hall himself was an amateur historian who had focused in particular on locating the battlefields in Texas history. Roy Hall was writing back in 1932, and here's what he says about the Battle of Medina. Quote, It took two months of solid search and research to find the site of the Battle of Medina, fought by Toledo and Arredondo in 1813. When finally located, I could hardly believe my good fortune. For it was, is, in the same apparent state now as when the battle was fought 119 years ago. End quote. Because that's where he stops. He doesn't tell us any more about the battle. And in trying to track down the manuscript, it turns out that the manuscript for this book that he was researching all of these battle sites for was lost in the mail. Roy Hall was from Collin County, Texas and was involved for many years in the North Texas Historical Commission. And so I eventually got in contact with Kristen up there with that organization. And she and I are still working through some ideas to see if we can try and track down somewhere else that maybe Roy Hall or even his wife, Helen Hall, may have written about the location of the battlefield of Medina. If you have any information, keep your eyes open. But it is compelling that at least even in 1932, someone, verifiably, felt like they had found the battlefield of Medina. A second postscript. Rumor is that somebody else in the area has also started finding some intriguing colonial artifacts. Lots of them, in fact. And in fact, they're finding them precisely six miles away from where we found ours. We're getting together with this group soon to compare notes. More on that the next season. And to that end, I can't end this season without making a call, once again, for folks to come forward with artifacts if you have them. Please, anything you think may be colonial, especially lead and iron balls, if in doubt, let us know, and we're happy to discreetly evaluate them for you. And lastly, we need more veteran volunteers to join our Avar crews, though we only have a limited number of spots that we can fill for next season. If you have any experience in archaeology, great, but even if you don't, we can get you started especially for folks that are local to the area please contact me through my website www.brandonseal.com or you can contact Avar through their website americanveteransarchaeology.org and here before we finish roll call these are the names and branches of service of all of the participants from Avar in our surveys in February Stephen Humphreys Air Force Kathy Kuzmic, Navy Jeff Truitt Navy, Scott Woodard, Army, Jeremy Scroggins, Air Force, Justin Korkutis, Marines, Kyle Baker, Navy, Thomas Kane, Army, Jorge Cruz, Marines, Randy Bozen, Navy, Kyle O'Connor, Army, Megan Lukacheski, Air Force. Thank you, guys, for all your time, for all your passion. And I want to recognize here the people that step forward to fund our efforts back in February. The American Battlefield Trust, Howard Energy Partners, Jefferson Bank, Wealth 1900, John Dixon, Mandy Medina, Kenneth Bethune, and all of the other individual donors who made this possible. My sincerest, sincerest thank you. Sound editing for this episode was provided by Stephen Bennett. Music is from George Gaetan. For more information about Avar, go to AmericanVeteransArcheology.org. For more information about other seasons of our podcast, especially Season 2, Finding Medina, and about our next season of Battle of Medina Surveys, you can go to www.brainandseal.com. Still something there. Away
1: with you. <laughs> <laughs>